From a whisper to a roar, our voice has grown in strength and volume. Echoes from our past guide our future as we explore the woman's voice. Okay, so today is really special. I am like a giddy little kid this morning going to introduce to you the phenomenal Robin Moore. Welcome, Robin. Thank you very much, Lisa. I'm I'm so honoured to be here and I'm dying for our chat because um, I know you ask tantalising questions. Oh, I so like I'm that. Really... I like that word, tantalising. <laughs> Look, I, I met you just a few months ago. You were here in Brisbane yep. doing a, a speaking gig here and I have to admit, I was one of those those wide-eyed children in that audience. You took me back to my youth and being the voice of Blinky Bill. And I really do feel that that joie de vivre as a child this morning going, I'm going to talk to Blinky Bill. <laughs> so I know. To- <laughs> Look, older people won't get this, but I have hundreds of thousands of young people in Australia Um, probably from the age of 38 down to about 18, who uh, know Blinky very, very well. And I don't take this relationship lightly because Mm. when I perform Blinky, he has such a a vibrant spirit and he's inviting children to participate fully in life, which is part of my mantra for my life. So there's a lot going on in the delivery of the voice. And, you know, when I reveal that I've babysat people in the audience. Uh, you, you saw the reaction of some of the people there in Brizzy. You know, there were people fanning themselves and some people can't breathe. And, and I have a lot of Chinese students who come up sobbing because Blinky was the one who taught them English when they first arrived oh, wow. in Australia. Oh, look, I have thousands and thousands of Blinky stories. So I ring suicidal teenagers, I've been ringing our Make-A-Wish children because I've been national patron of Make-A-Wish for 27 years. And something happens after they hear a message or I speak directly on the phone and um, there's a palpable reaction. Um, Mm. They respond better to treatment or suicidal children, uh, teenagers, don't want to take their lives. I feel like you captured the the Australian spirit so beautifully in Blinky. And, you know, if if a a koala was going to have a voice, I do think that that's what Blinky, what a koala would sound like. What was the process in finding that? Well, I'd been working for Yoram Gross on um, six of his Dot movies. I wasn't in Dot and the Kangaroo. They had a cast of thousands in that. And then Yoram discovered that if he used voiceover artists, we could do all the voices. So Keith Scott and I did most of his um, subsequent Dot movies. And there was a voice I did in Dot and the Bunny that uh, Yoram really liked. So when he bought the rights for Blinky, um, he asked me to use that voice. And it's the voice that I heard out of one of my beautiful pupils when I was a, a teacher. And his name was Scott. And Mrs. Moore, Mrs. Moore, Mrs. Moore, look at that bird's nest. And, and he was like a little Stevie Irwin. And he'd take <laughs> us on nature walks. And so I'm, I'm trying to find the man, Scott. I believe he's a fisherman now. And um, I think that's perfect. And say, in Scott, you are the inspiration for the spirit of Blinky Bill. I so love I wanted that. to capture that enthusiasm and his essence and his love affair with, with nature and life. You did when you just took on that that voice. I'm I'm just going to highlight from a uh, a vocal coach perspective. Yes, you take on the persona, you take on the energy, and the animation comes in, and your whole body becomes engaged. Is that something that you trained with, or is that something that you were born with? It's it's a natural expression of me. Um, I, I have had no, no training in, in voice um, apart from going to an opera singer just for one lesson. And he said, finding you is like finding a sunken vessel covered in barnacles. And I just have to remove the barnacles and there will be this beautiful voice. And I thought, you're not going to touch my barnacles and <laughs> ran away. But um, I, I think it's because I'm a wireless child. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the outback. My dad was a stockman, drover, shearer, chef, wool baler, mm-hmm. and we lived in the outback in Queensland on a property called Tyree Torrens Creek. And uh, when I was little in the 1950s, 
we had radio wireless serials and we'd all sort of sit with our ears against the speakers and uh, and listen to serials. So I, to this day, see the world through my ears. And so as you notice, there was a, a whole sort of physicality, uh, you know, all, all the cells in my body become enlivened when I do a voice because it, it takes over my entire being. <laughs> You've already started the journey. So let's keep going down that, that path of how has your voice led you here today? Because it's a fascinating journey. Yes, I'm, I'm very blessed. That, that, that beginning with wireless set me up. Now, I didn't even know that um, there were real people behind the microphone. You know, the, these were characters that were real. They were my friends. Mm. And um, so I set out on life to be a, a, a teacher. But all the way in high school, I did funny tapes for students who were sick or, you know, and I did a Steadfords and I always had the lead in the play and drama and voice and uh, was always, you know, a primary expression for me. But um, in my first year out teaching, the director of um, Oliver, we were putting on Oliver at the Theatre mm. Royal, she worked uh, at the ABC and said, would I like to audition for ABC educational radio programs because they were all produced in Tasmania back in the 1970s. And um, I said, oh, well, yeah, I would love to. And I'll never forget that Monday night when I stood in front of the speaker and, uh, and I thought, oh, oh, this microphone is a, is a window to the world. And I was smitten. So I taught for five years and started to do um, radio programs at night and then started to write them. And, um, and I was hooked. So then left Hobart and went to Sydney to try my luck as a voiceover artist right at the cusp of the Australian film industry. So all of the lovely actresses, you know, Jackie Weaver and Nolene Brown and, and Helen Morse and all these beautiful Australian actresses all went into the movies and I went to Sydney and filled that hole, that gap in voiceovers. So it was it was a wonderful journey doing comedy. Um, How Green Was My Cactus has been on for 33 years all around Australia, a political satire. I worked with Ross Higgins and Kev Goldsby, my heroes from the Naked Vicar show uh, in Samuel Pepys. It was a, uh, a show recorded live at the Phillip Street Theatre in Sydney. And uh, that was uh, just amazing. And uh, subsequently then met Yoram Gross and did all of the animation and voiceovers for ads, iconic ads like the spray and white commercial. Got a cough from Sue's our daughter. Something had distraught her. You know, that it's wow. nauseating. But oh, it, my gosh, she just took millions of dollars for the product, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's having an understanding of how to connect. So, you know, that's my love affair with, with wireless, with sound, my teaching ability in wanting to create outcomes and then... Um, you know, the creativity of uh, producing something from my from my heart, from my soul and mm. delivering it through this hole in my face, mm. you know, out through that did, microphone to you. Where did that come from, that, that desire, do you think, of wanting to make those deeper connections? Was there an influence in your younger years? I was thinking about that recently and I think one of the pivotal moments was um, when I watched the Helen Keller story, I was only little, I was only in primary school. Now, Helen Keller was born deaf, she was a mute mm. and was blind. And her amazing teacher had to try and get across the word, the significance of a word. And she'd been teaching her sign language so she could feel the teacher's fingers. And then one day she was some... Um, Helen was putting her hands underneath running water under a tap and her teacher suddenly seized that moment and signed, grabbed her hand and signed water as she felt oh, the water. I mean, I'm, I'm welling up telling the story. Wow. It is so significant for me. And as a little girl, I sobbed. I actually cried from the bottom of my heart in this moment where Helen got the word water. And uh, she writes in her biography that um, autobiography that um, the power of the word is, you know, when you get the word, when she got that word, she got the universe. Wow. And so my <laughs> quest, you know, people say they're driven. I'm not driven. I'm drawn. I'm drawn by a mighty purpose 
to to use this power of the word to tell stories that resonate deep within people's soul, their guts, their spirit, Mm. so that I'm pulling them, drawing them into life. So my purpose is, in ten words, to be an irresistible invitation to fully participate in life. Wow. And that's what's behind every story, every interaction. You know, if I'm buying a sandwich, um, you know, I'll engage with the person. I'll appreciate them. I'll smile. You're present. You're present. Are yeah. you, can I ask if you've got a, a, a background in any kind of religion or spiritual practice? Yes. Um, my, my parents had a, a farming faith, it was a very simple faith, but there was always God. And my dad, because he was only four foot 11 and a half, was a laugher and a bit of a larrikin. So one of his favourite jokes was about a, a man and a little boy doing some gardening and um, and this little boy said, Dad, is, is God everywhere? And his father said, yes, son. Is he in that tree? Yes, son, God's in the tree. Is he in the barn? Yes, he's in the barn. Is he in this wheelbarrow that I'm pushing with the heavy rocks? And he said, yes, he's in the wheelbarrow that you're pushing with the heavy rocks. Well, I wish he'd get out and help me push him. You know, so, <laughs> now, I may be a bit irreverent, but, you know, it was just that uh, the ever-present conversation about God. And um, so I became a Catholic convert um, when I was 38. I had an epiphany and uh, I absolutely love Love having faith. It's very important. Mm. It is. It is. And I think that, that that shines through that wanting to connect and make an impact on people's lives. Mm. I think I've got the answer to this next question. So I'm going to actually twist this one. So your life experiences, you've obviously taken them and in some way, brought them to life, brought, put breath into those experiences so that you can create that, I, I talk about the sympathetic vibration so that you are the essence of, or the reflection of the potential of these people that are standing in front of you. Is, is that fair to say? You, you've articulated that beautifully, you know, put breath into it. That's exactly what I'm doing. And it's funny, sometimes people speak to you after a conference presentation as if it was happenstance. It was like, oh, you're so lucky being able to do this. You know, <laughs> like you're right. I know exactly what I'm doing. I, this is my intent, you know, and I say to audiences now, my intent is this is going to be a day you'll never forget as long as you live. You know, and I really got that strongly in Ireland when I was talking to 600 Irish rural women. And there's a lovely adage in Ireland, if you want to climb over a great big wall, first throw your hat over. At least you'll be committed. (laughs) I throw my hat over the wall and I tell my audiences that this outrageous intent. And then I have to be accountable. And as you say, I have to give breath to all of my stories, all of my life experiences, so Mm. that they permeate people's souls. And then people, you know, have this reaction. I call it a a bugger me moment. And you squeeze as many of those in as you possibly can into a presentation Mm. that's Mm. very carefully planned. Um, I don't just do a generic talk. No, and I think that that's a really important, you know, we're talking about the woman's voice and people being able to reconnect with their voice. It's an important message for everyone to understand that being a a veteran in what you do now, it's taken you years and years and years of very conscious planning and intention from the, the, the stories to the content, to the message, uh, how you want that audience to feel when you leave that room. In fact, my brief sheet um, has five questions on it and I give my clients the brief sheet so that they can ponder uh, what they want for their audience. Mm. I say this is your wish list, you know, just as Mm. we do with a a wish child, you know. If you could have anything you wanted, what would you wish for? Mm. And the first question is, you know, what is missing 
the presence of which would make a difference. Mm. And so they can just dwell in that question and think, oh, gosh, you know, they, they create great results, but they, they don't actually get how great they are, you know. So mm. that, that's, there's a hole there that I get to plug um, with the stories that I choose then from my vast array in my wardrobe of, of uh, stories. Mm. And I can go, that's the distinction, that's the philosophical distinction that's missing and mm. that's the story to pull that into people's hearts and mm. souls. And you can feel, you can feel, I'm using a lot of discernment in my talks and I guess that goes back to your teaching skills. You know, you're using your teacher eyes, you know, sit up straight back. Um, <laughs> you know, and you can actually feel movements of spirit in the room and you know if that hasn't embedded yet, if that distinction hasn't embedded, then I'll draw in another story that it's like, there it is. There, yeah. got it now. Yeah. And then we can move on. So it's a, a roller coaster ride. Um, taking people inside themselves so that they can walk around inside themselves mm. and poke a stick at, oh, that's why I do that. Gosh, I'm just flapping, flapping away through life. I haven't really thought about mm. my purpose, my values. And we bandy these words around. I mean, everybody's got a big yes. old frame in the office with a mission statement. And, and you ask people, what's your mission statement? Oh, I don't know, because it's about 10 pages long. You know, whereas when I work with companies, we just invent one on the spot. Mm. I remember working with um, some electrical people who fix a whole lot of electrical things in the back room. So, you know, they're kind of hidden and they've got this great big old frame with a big mission on it and um, they happen to be Sony. And so we looked at the, the word Sony, S-O-N-Y, and it was seamless service, on time, no problems, we deliver. Sorry, yes. Yeah, you matter. You matter. Wow. Yes, and you know, that was their simple, accessible. One of the things that I I love with your ability of storytelling is that you're, as you said, you go to your wardrobe of experience and mm. in, in life, and you're essentially talking then about you. You're talking about how you've experienced something in life and you've package that up in a beautiful way so that it doesn't feel like you're big noting yourself. And that's something that I notice with ladies when they're trying to get their message out there is they don't like talking about themselves. And I think that that's a really great example of what you do is that you tell the story to bring life into it so that people can attach to it. Do you do that deliberately, Robin? Yes, because that's the only story I know. I don't want to get up there on stage and say, you know, you have to do this, uh-huh. you have to do that. Mm. And that's why one of the slogans I'm using is beyond informed to transformed. Oh. So a lot of speakers will inform people. So you'll have massive slides and you have all of these mm. um, approaches and systems and procedures and strategies and and they they're going foo, 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 you know, and and they don't they don't you can't catch those. It might be inspiring, you know, for a couple of moments in the conference room, but it doesn't doesn't stay, doesn't embed. Whereas when it's a personal thing, it just goes, you know. Okay, you've mentioned you've mentioned slides. What what's, what's your, your interpretation? about around slides because I think if you've got a 30-minute presentation and you've got 60 slides, you've got a few too many. What? How do you feel about them? Well, I never, ever used PowerPoint. Mm. Um, however, in the last probably four or five years, I have started to use it because a lot of people are visual. Mm. I'm oral, but I've got to allow for the fact that people need pictures sometimes. So uh, I very rarely have any sort of words unless it's just intent or purpose. It'll just be one word. And I use a lot of pictures. Mm. They might be funny, quirky things. So I I do actually have quite a few now. (laughs) And as I'm 70, it also helps me stay on track, which is terrific for me. But uh, I don't put any slides in that are not necessary in that that journey. So I have found that they're a great tool. 
but mm. um, they can be a nightmare and I've seen them used so badly. I, I watched one professor put one slide up once for um, probably a 90-minute talk and the writing was in it. <laughs> and, and I watched the audience and they were... <laughs> it's a balance isn't it you know you don't want to have too many slides because it's not about the slides I always say if you've got that many slides send the person an email you know yeah. they're, they're here they're there to see you and understand you and feel you yeah, yeah. so Robin have you ever been afraid to speak your truth uh, yes yes um which had great outcomes actually I think we need to lose something before we gain it yeah. <laughs> uh, we have to experience the loss so that we can see how much it mattered mm. and um, my beautiful mum married three times my my dad was a, was an alcoholic uh, because a horse uh, reared up in a thunderstorm and fell on top of his back and crushed his spine. So my dad was in pain for 35 years, 24-7. Oh, wow. And drank a lot. And their marriage ended. Second um, uh, husband was was a violent drunk, and the third one was a con man drunk. So he took everything my mum earned. But going back to the middle, the middle one, my stepfather, um, he was extremely violent. And every night I thought I might be killed. And um, at the time when I was head prefect, there was a violent fight at home. Um, and I remember him smashing me across the head with bricks and I was covered in blood and I, you know, escaped from his grip and ran underneath the house. We lived way down in the country so nobody knew what was going on. And, um, and I hid underneath the house and I was trying to stay quiet, you know. <laughs> with my breaths like that. I couldn't stop that gasping for air and I could hear him running around outside, raging like a bull, trying to find me. And um, thank goodness he didn't hear that noise, but I needed to be silent at that time. Um, But, you know, now I work a lot with people who are experiencing domestic violence. Mm. I did some videos for Holyoke. Um, right. We work with addicts and um, I did a series of 12 videos for families of addicts. Now I had to read the auto cue with the psychological um, con- content, but I said I'll only do this if I can deviate every now and again and tell some of my personal stories. Okay. And so I did. And it's um, amazing that the results were that uh, 75% of addicts whose families saw the videos sought help. The addicts didn't see the videos. The videos altered how the families were reacting to the addict in their family. Oh, and so not having a voice back then gave me this intense love affair of how important our voice is in this matter. Mm. So I'm going to jolly well use it, you know, and yeah. um, it's it's so beautiful. I can be walking down the street in Hobart and somebody will stop and, and go to hug me and then pull back and look embarrassed. And um, they say, oh, oh, sorry, I said, did you see the Holyoke videos? And they go, oh, <laughs> you know. And, wow. And it's like... Um, you get to walk around inside people, you know, yeah. and that's my legacy. You know, I'm now 70. I'm in the quickening of my life. Mm. And so I'm building legacy. Mm. And so I will live in other people. Mm. My stories will live in other people. You know, and there's a happy ending to this story with my stepfather. Um, my mum told me years uh, ago that uh, he wanted to Uh, pay for my education and my sister's education. And mum said, oh, no, they're my daughters. I'll pay for them. And in that moment, uh, he was thwarted as a stepfather. Mm. We bring understanding to these situations. Um, Suddenly when I heard that story, uh, I was able to, I had a shift that was so profound where I thought, oh, my goodness, 
That's what Peter wanted to do. He wanted to be a stepfather and pay for our education. Mm-hmm. But instead, he had all this money from work and it was heavy work. So in those days, you know, the, the pubs would shut at 6 o'clock. He'd finish work at 4 and drink as many beers as he could, mm-hmm. probably 20, you know, in two hours. And then, then, then the mayhem would start. Um, so wow. I, actually, I actually thanked him for wanting to do that. And um, I tell students at leadership camps, you know, that um, I actually have his ashes on our land where we live now. No, I didn't kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, so I paid for his funeral. Um, okay. If you played a video now of that violence, uh, I go, yeah, it doesn't watch me. Has your voice ever saved your life? Um, it saved other people's lives. I think that's, I think from not having a voice and now making the conscious choice to give others their empowerment and their voice, mm. um, I do it that way. Yes. Um, yes. I love that well and truly in my life. So now I probably every day there's things that I do, you know, look after myself, ask mm. questions of doctors, you know, take care of my body, mm. um, those sorts of things. Isn't that important when you when you go through health routines and, and, and scares? And I know that's yeah. for me, that's been my journey, that to ask those specific questions when you do have a voice. And, and certainly I was talking to someone just yesterday who was she had to put cream on her face, which was the equivalent of putting chemotherapy on her face. And she didn't think to ask certain questions about is this harmful to my loved ones in my house or mm-hmm. what can I expect in the process of this? And and I just I get so saddened when people don't even think. Mm. to ask a question about their own safety and health in those situations. Mm. Have you ever been in that environment with with your health that you've had to ask questions that are really important? Yes. Um, I had breast cancer 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And I'm not one to um, find out too much about an illness. I like to uh, just be thinking about, when I'm well, when I'm yeah. well, when I'm well. But there was one question I asked the oncologist and that was, what did they do with my lump? After the lumpectomy, I said, was it thrown on the tip? Was it incinerated? And he said, oh, no, he said, your lump has been made into little uh, slides and that will be studied for 60 years. And I, it was a triumph, like a good little lump, you know, my lump's out there doing good. And and that was just such a transforming answer. Wow! There, I've you know? never, I've never, I would never have. There you go. I would never have thought to ask, "What did you do with my lump?" <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to know. Um, you know, and there were so many funny things about my breast cancer. So I I was determined not to lose my sense of humour because next to our Make-A-Wish children who have, I mean, one little girl, Emily, aged five. I've got a list about that long in the camera, <laughs> of her procedures. She, she had so many procedures. I had a lumpectomy and, mm. uh, ra- you know, radiotherapy for, what, 38 goes. But um, initially I didn't know whether I was going to live or die, but mm. it was nothing next to the children. So I used them as my inspiration. Mm. And the funniest thing happened um, the day after it was confirmed, I was speaking in New Zealand and I said to my husband, if this is, if this is you know, a, a positive result, um, you're going to come to New Zealand with me because I don't know whether I'm going to cark it or not. So uh, jumped on the plane. We went over together. And after the conference, uh, we went for a trip to Fjordland. And it was fantastic. And we were just in this beautiful place of being, mm. being in love, being love itself because we didn't beautiful. know what the future held. And uh, on the way back, the bus driver said, oh, have I got a treat for you. He said, I've got this four-hour video of a fantastic artist in concert. You're going to love this. Now, I mean, we've been in bands together, my husband and myself, Um, so we love music. We we used to be hot. 
And, um, and I said to my husband, this would better be somebody we like, you know. Now, you may love this singer-songwriter, and I wish I'd written one of his songs, Hallelujah. Right. But when you've just been diagnosed with breast cancer, you do not want to be trapped in a bus with Leonard Bloody Cohen. Cohen. <laughs> who is so depressing. There are scratch marks still on the door of the bus where I was trying to get out, and there was no escaping. We were trapped in the bus. And after a while, I saw the funny side and I couldn't stop laughing. My husband said, what's the matter? And I said, this is perfect. I said, Leonard Cohen is so depressing. I said, I can feel the cancer cells committing suicide. <laughs> and I said, "Woo, there's another one. So I pointed my right breast to the speaker, you know, and it's like now when he comes on the radio, I, I you know, point the, the, the breast <laughs> to the speaker. I do a complete revolution, you know. And 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 I, I have a head of a scan every now and again with Leonard Cohen. Oh, you've made my year. That is the best visual ever. <laughs> you know, and that's why I'm a, a national ambassador for Dragons Abreast Australia. And we laugh, you know, these beautiful women in this organization who paddle, paddle their hearts out. Um, just are joyous, are full of life, mm-hmm. not dying, full of life. Isn't it, isn't it a beautiful feeling to be an ambassador because I'm one for the ACCF, the Cervical Cancer Foundation, oh, well and yeah. to, to be able to bring hope. Yes. To be that, again, that potential of what is, mm-hmm. I think is, is, well, it's part of my legacy piece as well. So uh, well done on all of your ventures. I know you've got so many that you're, connected with with your uh volunteering so it's fantastic i want to ask you this question because i'm really intrigued to hear what you say with this if oprah's voice was a color what color would you say it is now and this is nothing to do with the movie but it would have to be purple isn't it amazing everyone says purple because that's the color of leadership it's the color of wisdom it's the color of spirituality yeah it's, yeah. And I love getting people to think this way about, mm-hmm. about the voice. You know, my coach is Armenian. And mm-hmm. when I went to Armenia with her, it became so clear to me how European composers create the music that they do because they've got such extraordinary surroundings with with their countryside and the colour changes and the music is reflected in that. And she always spoke to me about what colour are you are you creating? And she'd go, what colour is that? That's a horrible colour. Um, and so I'm always thinking when I listen to voices, I think about colours. And I think we all do because most people come back to Oprah's voice is purple. Nothing to do with the movie. No, the colour of purple. No, it's just there, isn't it? It's It's just what we feel. So if her voice is purple, what colour do you think your voice is? Um, I'm just relying on some comments that I've heard. So uh, I've heard that it's gold, like, um, and it's a, a meditation that's very powerful. Uh, if you do a meditation, you can if you imagine breathing in gold into mm-hmm. your body, mm-hmm. and then you know, um, and then expelling gold everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I see the stories. They're golden stories. But I had some confirmation where uh, I think Rowena was the little town sunk into the depths of despair with drought for five years. Mm-hmm. And um, I spoke to all these lovely farmers. Now, they weren't coming. Nobody was going to come to this event because it was the middle of winter and everything had been so hard. And I'd spoken to the teachers at the uh, Roxy Theatre that afternoon and all the teachers ran down the street. They said to the shopkeepers, you've got to come to the evening session. They rang all their farming friends. You've got to come to the evening session. And all these people turned up at the Roxy Theatre. Now, they stayed there till 11 o'clock at night. We couldn't get them to go home. And we had the most beautiful time. And a lady said to me afterwards, you mainlined gold into their veins tonight. Oh. And it's not it's not an evaluation I can use all the time, but it's so meaningful to me because that's that's why I was there. You know, there's a James Taylor song that I absolutely love. That's why I'm here. Yeah, to know why you're here. Yeah, why I was there. 
Yeah. Exactly, to mainline gold yeah. in their veins. So that's how it occurs for me. It's so important for people to understand when they are finding their voice that it's actually not about you. No. It's no. what are you giving? Because in that moment you've got an opportunity and you've just given me a gift in that moment of what a beautiful analogy to mainline gold into the veins of these people that are suffering so profoundly. Mm-hmm. It's so important when you're when you're developing a voice to know what is that intention of how do I want these people to feel? Because the voice will go wherever you want it to go, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. But you've and got it changes. You know, yeah, you, you, you're, in, you're in control of who you're being. But if you're speaking to an audience and your attention is on yourself, forget it. Go home. Don't be Go home. Your attention has to be on the audience. You have to be complete in yourself know why you're there, know your purpose, know your intent. Um, and one of the other questions on my brief sheet is, you know, how do you want your audience to feel at the end? Mm. And, uh, you know, and they'll say enlivened, hopeful, all those things. Yeah. And that's part of the preparation for the journey. Yeah. How do you get into their veins and extract, you know, pull forth from them mm. those beautiful emotions, <laughs> finding the right stories? One of the great ways that I like to tell people to think about this is when you've got a young child in front of you and that young child is upset, traumatised, and you want them to calm down, what do you naturally do with your voice in that moment to help calm that child down? And I think that's a really great representation for everyone to realise that it's not about you in that moment. You're not thinking about, well, how am I going to feel with with the result of this child. It's about making sure that that child feels, and this is the ultimate word for me, safe. Yes. So you shift everything in your body language, in your content, in your tone to make sure that that child's going to feel safe. And I think that's what you are a master of is that you make people feel safe. Well, thank you. And and it's lovely. Um to, to notice afterwards, you know, when you've been recorded, what actually happened on stage and how your voice has uh, morphed during mm. the presentation to, to you know, demonstrate what you're talking about. Um, the more excited I become as an audience, the more Australian I get, you know, so I, I get a recording back. I'm going, oh, isn't life fantastic, you know, and, <laughs> and I think, uh, and you'll get some speakers who'll say, no, we have to stand in a particular way. I remember once going to a, a, a speaker's forum and a lady came up afterwards and she said, no, that was absolutely wonderful. But um, uh, you you weren't in the centre of the room when you finished your talk. You know, you need to be in the centre of the room so the attention's all on you. <laughs> and I said, look, um, my attention's on the audience. I, I don't know where I'm going to be when I finish because that's where my attention is. Mm. And, uh, and I, I thought afterwards, goodness me, I don't want to be one of those, those no. speak properly. Um, as you say, it, you, you become one with the audience mm. and, and, and sometimes you'll be whispering. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to have good sound. You You're know. creating a sensory oh. experience, aren't you? That's you've got to be able to... To, to whisper to, to be confidential to, and then to laugh and to express yourself in, the, in your loud notes, um, but, you know, not thinking about it. it that just happens naturally. Well, you've all, you've achieved this, I think, twice already in in forty minutes. You've achieved tears in my eyes, uh, which I take as a great gift. And when I I did a singing job a couple of weeks ago and this beautiful lady came to me and she said, did you do that deliberately? And I said, what? She said, did you make everyone cry deliberately? And I said, yes, I did. (laughs) Because I know that you're never going to forget that moment in time. I've given you a great gift. So when I go on stage and I sing, that is one of my goals. Do you go into not make people cry, boohoo, ugly cry, but yeah. emotion to make us feel human again? Yeah, and and it it just happens 
naturally. I don't have at the start, oh, good, here comes a crying moment. <laughs> you know, there's some make-a-wish stories that, that I share where we just cry. If you were, you know, you wouldn't be human if you didn't cry. Um, I told this particular story um, to some insurance brokers in the uh, Adelaide Cricket Ground, the hallowed, you know, Adelaide Cricket Ground. Um, and as I walked into the room, there was Donald Bradman's bat in a glass case. And I don't know whether that had something to do with it. It was, it was certainly a spiritual moment. But I was uh, talking to these 40 men and uh, I said, yes, at Make-A-Wish, my favourite story is about Daniel, who um, had only a couple of weeks to live. And he wanted to go to England to see um, one of the British cricket players, but he couldn't fly. So the doctor said, you're going to die soon, Daniel. You'll have to change your wish. So he changed it to a shopping spree. And Daniel's mum has kindly given me permission to share with you now and with these insurance men this story. Uh, this is Daniel's shopping list. I wish for a dishwasher for my mum because she works too hard. I wish for a puppy for my sisters so they have something to play with when I die. I wish for bracelets for my mum and my sisters with my name engraved on them so that they don't forget me. And for my dad, I would like a ring with the word strength and courage engraved on it. I would just like a Hummer ride. And on the morning of the shopping spree, he was so ill he could hardly move. So he said, I'm going anyway because I don't know how long I've got to live. And they went shopping. And mum didn't get a dishwasher. She got a barbecue and she cooks on it almost every day. Mm. Two weeks later, I received an email from Make-A-Wish which says, said, uh, heaven was short of angels today and we lost him. Now, I share that story with every audience I speak to. Uh, and everybody just gets Daniel's amazing soul. He is being the best of himself and extracting gratitude for his mum, fun and play with the puppy, longevity and memories with the bracelets, and strength and courage for his dad. He's being the best of himself in that moment because he's living with urgency before the emergency. Mm. And um, in this particular moment in the cricket ground at Adelaide, uh, we all just sobbed. I completely, I could hardly finish the story. And I said to the men, um, I don't know whether it's because we're here in the Bradman room and the bats there and this is a cricketing story. Um, I don't know, but it was absolutely sacred and we'll never, we'll never forget that as long as we live. Thank you for such an uh, extraordinary story. I'm I'm a bit lost for words um, with emotion, just incredible examples of how powerful words are, yeah. how powerful the voice is and how important it is for us always to be thinking of what is the gift that we can give today. Robin, we've got a pandemic going on with mental health really across the globe and I think that Certainly COVID has not helped that situation and has been, you know, fertiliser to it to a degree. What do you, what piece of advice do you give to people to find that grateful and find that gold lining or silver lining for people to move forward in their life? I think, first of all, you've got to embrace what is. Um, instead of going for the silver lining first, that's a little, you know, hidden during COVID. I, I you know, watched my business completely mm. die because I need flights. I usually am on 180 flights a year and our industry was hit, as you know, completely. Um, so you've got to actually be sad when you're sad. You've got to be angry. You've got to be concerned. You've got to be uh, anxious. All of those things are totally appropriate. And what I do for myself and with my audiences is draw a roller coaster. And we did that in Brisbane mm. and plot where we are on the ride. The roller coaster is the ride of our life, but we can't deny the bottom parts of the ride because then that's being untrue to ourselves. Mm. And it's, um, it's like, you know, covering up yeah, poo with ice cream. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And that doesn't make sense because there's always the poo underneath. Mm -hmm. um, 
So first embrace, you know, the tough bits. How am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling this, 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 and be with that. And then the next question, how long will, you know, this be, you know, how will I be feeling like this? Now, to get out of that, I always ask people to think of a word that those feelings stole. You know, and some of the negative feelings will be cynicism, resignation, anger, and procrastination, and the acronym spells CRAP. So when we're in that crappy phase in reaction, a human reaction, reacting, what has been stolen? And when you start to say, oh, it stole my laughter, it stole my compassion, it stole my creativity, it stole my health, it stole the present, it stole love, it stole family, fun. You've got to be able to see what was lost before you can make a choice. Mm. So when you see the enormity of what those negative feelings can steal from you, then you have the power to move beyond COVID. You can be bigger than COVID and choose to be, you know, one of those words. So um, I've seen miracles show up during this COVID period um, where people have just found that one word that matters so deeply to them and they lost it because they were down in the crap in COVID. Yeah. yeah. And when they chose to be that significant word, then what opens up is gratitude and they can see it. Gratitude's always there somewhere, mm. but it's it's covered up with our you know, negative emotions. And it's kind of thrown away, isn't it, where we say, yeah, yeah, well, I'm grateful. I'm grateful yeah. to have a house and I'm grateful to have food, but mm. it's not focused on, on, that, um, on that micro detail. And Robin, you actually go into corporations, don't you? And you help with training and getting people to get this mindset. Yeah. Has that come back for you on the other side of COVID? Is that starting to move again for you? It's starting to come back, yes. Everybody, I think, is waiting for the vaccine yeah. rollout. And sadly, it's very slow. Yes, it's going <laughs> so, to take um, time. Yeah. People are just holding back because, you know, if we have all these people from interstate, you know, just as it happened recently in Brizzy and, and Victoria, it, oh, it's all closed down again. Yeah. So, I mean, the virtual will continue for some time. And so Do um, you do it? Do you do uh, training online? Have you transitioned into that world throughout yes. COVID? Yes, yes. So, and, and I find that, um, again, um, you know, this little this camera, you know, we're real. We're talking to each other. Yes, but so you get um, past it and hasn't it fast-tracked people's fear of cameras? It's mm, like, get over it. You, yes, you've I'll got say. no other chance. Wow. Well, little ones are born with it now. You know, I was taking a photo of a little girl recently and she sort of went, and I'm like, oh, what was that? That was a Vogue pose, you know. <laughs> I know they do. Robin, the other thing that I've noticed is the imposter syndrome is mm. is rampant and I don't think it's just here in Australia. You know, we do have the tall poppy syndrome. It is yes. very much alive, it is, but it is across the world at some level. Mm. Have you suffered from it and are you seeing it throughout the community as well and what's causing it? Yeah, um, I think in Australia we're suspicious of success. And when there's suspicion, then we'll stay safe and comfortable and, um, and you know, overlook certain people who can make a difference and who do make a difference. So we're not uh, likely to praise somebody for doing something fantastic because, I mean, how did they get that? If they got a father or something in that business? So we'll go down the suspicion tunnel. And it's really sad to, um, to see that we, we don't highlight the magnificence of people in this country and the creativity and the contribution. Um, so I, I wish we were a little more like Americans. The thing mm. I do like about their culture, and it's just this one thing, that um, they are, you know, um, able to actually elevate our greatness and, yes. and appreciate it. Um, somebody turned the light on for me, though, with humour because, you know, there is a, a joke around um, how do you define an expert? Well, an expert is somebody from out of town with PowerPoint. Absolutely. And um, so once you can laugh at that situation, then, then it makes it much, much easier. I have problems um, probably because I'm not an academic. Mm. So 
my work um, depends on ma- uh, you know word of mouth. Somebody's had that rich experience, so they will tell others, and that's how I get my work. But uh, if you were looking up, you know, my cred, um, I don't have a degree. I don't. I'm not a professor. I don't have a PhD. No. So that can actually be one of those tall poppy things where that can't possibly be valuable. You know, mm. you have to have lots of graphs and, and your PowerPoint and lots of references, mm. whereas I'll tell, you know, Daniel's story and a whole culture and a company will just be buoyed up. Um, it's, it's one of those things. I that's that, I that's do what feel, I have to deal with. Yeah, I do feel that that's changing, uh, you know, of course, getting educated and having PhDs, et cetera, has its value. I'm not berating mm. that at all. Mm. But I do think that there is a, a, a shift, a significant shift of value of experience in life and certainly having emotional intelligence yes. is, is so important in leadership today. Absolutely. Yes, you can have strategies to burn and people feel um, undervalued and don't want to come to work. I mean, what's that about? So there's no congruency and you you need the the, the congruency in the workplace so that, um, yes, you've got your strategic plan and also you've got all that emotional intelligence uh, creating a fullness and fulsomeness for your staff because in surveys all the time, the top of the list of requirements uh, of staff is uh, appreciated for a job well done. Number one, always. Number 10 is more money. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's always been there. That people have to be appreciated for a job well done. It's safe to say that you've used your voice your whole career. Mm-hmm. And you go on, and I have to say, from a vocal coaching perspective, your voice is in such good form. What do you do to keep yourself in check so that you're you're physically strong, you're emotionally strong, you're healthy? What are those day to day routines that that make sure that you can get and have conversations in every add value? Okay, so some of the routines, um, during COVID, I started meditating again. So meditating, and um, Deepak Chopra says, wake, we, meditate. (laughs) Wake up, you have a we, and then you meditate. Don't do anything else. Don't check the newspaper. Don't don't look at your phone. Don't have your breakfast. So that works beautifully. Mm. Um, I've started Qigong, which is great for energy flow. But I'm, I'm a bit lazy. I love walking but I don't do gym. I don't do any of that stuff. My fitness depends on my being before I speak. So it's all for me, it's all about the ontology, the nature of my very being. Why am I there? What am I here for? You know, what do I want for these people? What's my intent? What's my purpose? All of those things are on my checklist uh, over and above, you know, an hour at the gym. Mm. So it's a fitness. It's a fitness in my being, in my soul. You, you've got a high energy and you're high functioning. I think very naturally. Have you ever done anything that gets you into that state? It, it, you know, for me, I love going horse riding. If I go horse riding, you know, it doesn't have to be the day of, but the week of. I feel full of life and energy and joy of even. I've got that full tank to give. Is there anything that you like to do? Uh, cooking and eating. <laughs> I've just I've just done the the, the Noom program, which is very good. It's sociology, science, and psychology. And I've discovered that I've of all of the food, the hungers, I have um, uh, mouth hunger. Okay, so mouth tasting food. Right. <laughs> so I can just have little tiny morsels now instead of a great plate of stuff. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, eating food is a great pleasure and cooking delicious food yes. and gardening. I get lost in gardening too. Beautiful. That fills my tank. Yes. It can be so, it doesn't have to be something extraordinary. No. It's just, you know, I love to potter. That's my thing. If I don't get my potter time, yes. I. I'm no, I'm no help to anybody. <laughs> We're coming to the end of the of the interview, Robin, and I want to ask because I know there's going to be women out there that want to know what advice would you give to for women to reconnect to their voice. Um, 
everything I just spoke about before, um, know yourself, you know, to thine own self be true. And that doesn't mean, you know, this is who I am and stuff you and I'll be whoever I want to be and damn the rest of you. Um, You've got to be able to be whole, whole and complete. And for that to happen, um, you have to access love and respect kindness, gratitude, all of the things that we know about, but put them into practice. So a lot of people who know about these things but then are rude to a waitress or, you know, s- 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 little snide comments with their, with their partner. And I've been married now for 49 years and my husband and I have our little mantra, which is um, love is being responsible for your partner's tranquility. Mm, I like so it's that. the other um by serving the other you actually get to have fullness yourself mm-hmm. now i know that flies in the face of some of the feminist notions but i find that that works for me um because when um when there's the other then you get the wholeness of society of humanity mm-hmm. uh, just existing by ourselves as a little island isn't complete yeah and I um, asked some children recently which empowering word they were going to be uh, as I left the school. And a little boy said, I have a word. And I said, what's your word, Lockie? And he said, lifeful. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, Lockie, I love your word. I'm going to steal that word. Did you just make that up? And he went, you know, and I went <laughs> home and looked it up on Google and it was last used in the 13th century. And uh, we don't oh. use lifeful anymore. We use lifeless. Yes. So for me to be lifeful, I have to um, know that um, I am whole and complete. I am loved. I have these gifts and these talents which I will use to serve others. I have my intent. I have my purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my family. And then any other thing that comes into my life, yes, it'll be little pesky crap moments here and there, but um, the overriding picture of lifefulness wins through. Yeah. I always say to people, imagine, you know, you've got some problems today, but imagine waking up in Syria. Yeah. You know, and just doing that quick comparison each day when you wake up and just say, oh, I woke up here. Yes, Yes, we've got some problems got some issues, we've got some challenges, but I didn't wake up in a refugee camp that was just incinerated or um, I'm not in a country that has thousands and thousands of COVID deaths every day. Mm. Um, yeah, that's what works for me. What's next for your voice and and in this phase of your life? I think, as I said before, I'm in, I, I'm in the quickening of my life. I'm in the final quarter um, my husband and I have already bought our plot, so we're ready. You know, when Donald Dump was doing his uh, his thing, we'd look at each other and just say, ah, we've got a plot. <laughs> so I think it's about recording. And that's why I was I was just so thrilled when you when you contacted me and asked to do this podcast. I think it's about capturing mm. these stories so that they're not lost. Mm. Um, and so that we can, you know, mainline more gold into mm. people's mm. Well, I I know that I'm very grateful as an Australian to have you in our midst. And I've thought many times throughout this interview, I've taken away absolute golden nuggets, but I've had the good fortune to be in the presence of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, many times. I've gone to many teachings of his and I actually had a one-on-one encounter with him once upon a time. And you, if if there was a moment that I could sit with anyone in the world, and you can hear it in my voice, the emotion sitting underneath, anyone in the world and have a dinner with, it would be, I think you've just made that list with the Dalai Lama because oh. uh, you're extraordinary. You're extraordinary. Oh. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart today. Thank you. That means a great deal to me. Thank you very, very much. And as Blinky said, you are extraordinary. And I, I love that, you know, I watched you through that television set when you were a little girl. 
Yes. And uh, look at the fine woman you've become now. And, um, and, and, you know, sharing people's stories with everybody. What a gift you are, you know, because you're a conduit now. Yes. Um, for all these other stories. And who knows? Who knows who's going to listen to someone? That's right. That's right. Just we the right don't way, know. just the right person. Yes. You know, and I always click my fingers and count the seconds as we did in Brisbane, but they were the Brisbane seconds. Yes. Here we are in these seconds and people miss them. Yeah, but these are our seconds. We find our voice seconds where we're true to ourselves and we love and we're kind, we're thoughtful, gracious, wise, beautiful. Mm. Perfect. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining me today to strengthen your voice. You want to be heard and you deserve to be heard. We're here to make sure that the woman's voice is heard. I'm Lisa Lachlan Bell and together we are the woman's voice. Thanks to our official sponsor, The Voice Draw. For more information on your voice, go to thewomansvoice.com.au.